0: Hey, good morning, friends. Welcome to Restoration Today, whether online or in person. So glad that you've decided to to be with us, especially those of you in person today, because there are a lot of excuses to stay sleeping this morning. and tucked away in that bed on this rainy morning, but so glad that you're here with us today. I want to start by... Uh, so in 1906... Uh, Maybe some of you have heard stories about this or read articles about it. In 1906, the great San Francisco earthquake happened, and it completely decimated the city of San Francisco. 7.8 in magnitude, it leveled 80% of the city, destroyed 25,000 buildings, left 300,000 people homeless, 3,000 people dead, What wasn't destroyed by the quake itself was destroyed by fire, as numerous gas lines um, erupted and explosions all throughout the city. Firefighters couldn't even get to those fires because the water lines had also broken. So they attempted to, you know, hook hoses up to, uh, to, to to water mains, and they couldn't because there was no water pressure. There was no water left in the city, and so if it wasn't destroyed by fire or the earthquake itself, it was destroyed by floods from the water the water mains being broken. It took three years to dig out of the rubble and rebuild. This is the kind of event that no one never fully recovers from. Even still, 115 years later, uh, on the anniversary of this, April April 18th, um, children and grandchildren of survivors of this event come together on April 18th every year, and they memorialize it, they talk about it, they tell stories of what has happened, and they remember the great earthquake of of 1906. Here's the thing, on that same day, right, in 500 miles east in Nevada they also experienced that earthquake people have talked about how they were standing in their kitchen and they could they felt this tremor right and and the and the picture frames on their wall were slightly dislodged and they could feel the ground was somewhat wobbly for about 5 minutes or so two different experiences with the exact same event the exact same event the exact same earthquake for one person, it was like, yeah, you know what? It, it, it disrupted my day for about five minutes. I kind of questioned it a little bit. I kind of thought, what's going on here? I don't really know. And then it was over and I went about my day and nothing really changed. I put the picture frame back on the wall and we went about our life. But for other people, it completely disrupted everything that they knew about existence. Everything they knew about life, everything that they knew about living was completely disrupted, was completely wrecked, was completely ruined, and they had to rebuild now from there. It was a quake that shook and changed their life significantly. We're in a series titled Aftershock. We're exploring how the resurrection of Jesus, right, that great earthquake that shook not only the earth but also the heavens, how it impacts not only that first century people who experienced it firsthand but also continues to impact the world. And just like the earthquake of 1906, the resurrection of Jesus impacts people in different ways. For some people that hear about the resurrection, they're like, yeah, cool, it's a cool story, whatever, you know, I'm going to go up my life and do my thing, and it's not really going to impact me or change me. It's not going to wreck my, my experience or not going to change my experience or change my priorities. I'm going to continue to go on with life as I've always gone on with life. But so for some of us, and we know this because we've experienced it, right, it totally changes everything. It wrecks our existence upon the planet. It changes everything that we know about life and living. Same event. Two very different Experiences. Now, here's the thing. The resurrection was an event that changed people. And therefore, its continual change that we experience relies on people. Its continual impact as it goes out throughout the world continues to rely on people. Now, I don't mean that God never uses nature or God never uses experiences or God never uses visions. I mean, go ask the Muslim world right now, and there'll be so many stories about how Jesus is appearing to people at night in visions independent of any people, right? So God still works through visions and miracles and, and and natural experiences. I just mean that, you know, on the morning of the resurrection, there wasn't this magical cloud that arose out of the tomb that covered the face of the earth and all of a sudden made everybody happy. There wasn't this magical cloud that arose from the tomb and made everybody peaceful and made every relationship reconciled and just gave us all the power to be new and changed and made new. There wasn't this supernatural event that just magically changed the world. In fact, we're told, actually, one of the very first responses to the resurrection was the the Jewish guards who were at the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead went back to the Jewish authorities, and they said, hey, um, the body isn't there anymore. The tomb's been rolled away, the stone's been rolled away, and the body isn't there anymore. And the Jewish authorities say, here's a bunch of money. Will you just stay quiet about what has happened? In fact, if anybody asks you, just tell them that the disciples came and stole the body. The first response to the resurrection in the world was coercion. The first response was scandal. The first response was manipulation, right? There wasn't this magical cloud that all of a sudden changed the Jewish hearts of the Jewish authorities and changed the hearts of the Roman authorities who put Jesus to death. So if, if a magical cloud didn't change and rise up from the tomb on that, on that first resurrection morning, then how did the world change? How did the world change? If this was the great earthquake that shook the world but didn't itself disrupt the world, How did the world change? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn with us to Acts. We're going to be venturing through Acts for the next several weeks as we look at the aftershocks of the resurrection. Stories of change, stories of people experiencing the resurrected Jesus and how it changed their life and changed their culture, society, and their communities. And then hopefully we're going to tell a lot of our stories as well about how God is continually changing us. Because of the resurrection of Jesus. If you have your scripture with you this morning, whether it be in a book form or app form, I would encourage you to join us in the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We're going to be in chapter one today. And here's what we learn at the very beginning of chapter Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, so right here we know, if you've ever studied scripture before, we know that this is Luke writing, because if you were to go to the Gospel of Luke, he addresses that to Theophilus as well. And so Luke is the former book in reference here. And in Luke, Luke wanted to present the most detailed, accurate, and chronological account of Jesus' life that he possibly could. He interviewed, he studied, he did all of his research so that he could present the most accurate account of Jesus' life as he possibly could. And in Acts, then, we have the the second telling, right? Jesus rose from the grave, and now here is the continuation of that story in the early church. Luke actually traveled with many of the people that he tells the stories about. These are firsthand experiences that Luke is going to tell us about. This is his travel journal. These are the things that his personal notes that he wrote down about how he experienced the world begin to change after the resurrection of Jesus. And so, again, for the next several weeks, we're going to look at what Luke tells us through his writing in Acts. He says, in that former book... I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And so we ask, you know, well, how did the resurrection then, you know, even if it shook the world, it didn't disrupt the world, how did that actually begin to change the world? And the answer is one person at a time. One person at a time. The resurrection did not change the mind of the Jews who saw it as a scandal— The resurrection did not change the mind of the Romans, who saw it as foolishness. It changed the hearts of those people who had watched Jesus die, who had followed Jesus up for most of Jesus' life, and then watched him die on that Friday, giving up all hope that he was who he claimed to be, and then saw him rise again on that Sunday morning. And they recommitted their life, and they recommitted their faith to following after Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, actually, For what I received, I passed on to you his first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared then to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. And so Jesus appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the Twelve, and these people had a personal experience of the resurrected Lord, and it changed their lives. But after that, he continues, right? After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And so remember that, that Jesus always had huge crowds with him. Everywhere that he went, there were people following him. Huge crowds were being amassed everywhere that Jesus went. And so there were a lot of people who would call themselves disciples that Jesus then also appeared to and impacted their lives, who so had given up hope on Friday night, that he was who he said and claimed to be. But on Sunday morning, they recommitted their faith and their lives to him. He says, hey, if you don't believe that Jesus did this, then go ask these people because most of them are still alive. Although some of them have fallen asleep, some of them have died. Most of them are still alive. Go ask them how their lives were changed because of the resurrection. In addition to this, he also appeared to the apostles. That could be several hundred, maybe even thousands of people. And at last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. This is where the change took place. A relatively small group of people who personally met the risen Jesus were so radically changed, but they also understood the theology and the personal implications, right? These were people who were completely lost, completely without hope, completely left in despair, and they chose after seeing the resurrected Lord to believe that death had been defeated, that there was now hope and there was a means to live differently on the other side of the resurrection. They understood the implications of what Jesus rising from the dead meant. And then they began to share their story. And they began to tell the story of Jesus rising from the dead with others. Luke continues. After his suffering, he presented himself, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. So Jesus didn't just crawl out of the tomb, right? Think about this. He didn't just crawl crawl all out of the, t- out of the tomb. This is one of those... Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, pe- people's arguments against the resurrection will sometimes say, well, you know what? The, the, the coolness of the air revived Jesus. You know, he, yeah, he was beaten, but he wasn't quite dead. And the coolness of the tomb just revived him to the point where he was, he was able to walk out and convince the people that he was alive. But just think about this, right? He had been beaten and scourged to an inch of his life, to within an inch of his life, right? He had blood dripping down his face. He had a gaping hole in his side. He was completely drained of his blood. That's how he died upon the cross is that he bled to death. And it's this Jesus that crawls out of the tomb, and he approaches his disciples, right? He's weary, he's dehydrated, he's tired, he's dripping in dried blood, and he's just gross. And like, guys, I, I just rose from the dead. Will you believe me? Will you just believe me that I, I, I was resurrected? I mean, no one's going to believe that, right? No one's going to believe that this, this Jesus crawls out of the tomb in that condition and convinces people that he rose from the dead. He presented himself, this is what he's saying, this is what Luke is saying, he presented himself to them as one who had defeated death, not barely survived a Roman cross. The original Greek literally says that he presented himself with infallible proofs, undeniable proofs. It was obvious that Jesus had been restored. Not that just that he had crawled out of the tomb, barely convincing people that he had risen. It was obvious to anybody looking at him that he had been restored. They then ate with him, and they touched his side, and they they touched the holes in his hands. He would appear out of nowhere from time to time, because after being enthroned with the Father now, he could pull back the curtain that separates heaven and earth, and he could just go in between the two. And so he would just appear out of nowhere, like an angel would. He said that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion... While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Now guys, okay, uh, yeah, you've seen me rise from the dead. You are convinced, you are excited, but I want you to wait. I, I don't want you to go forth in your own power. I'm telling you, do not run ahead of what God is doing. Do not run ahead of what God is doing, but wait for him to prepare the way. I know you're excited. I know you've seen me rise. I know you want to go tell your friends. I know you want to go tell your families, but do not run ahead of what God is up to. But wait for him to prepare the way. Don't attempt to do this by your own strength, by your own power, by your own charisma, by your own extroversion. Do not try to do this, but wait. Did you know that for us Enneagram 7s, wait might as well be a four-letter word? I hate waiting. Anybody with me on there? How many, how many of us in the room hate to wait for things? I am a let's go ahead, let's do it, let's break ground, let's keep going, let's moving. Ask Emily, how many times do I start the next household project before I finish the last one? Every time, okay. I don't like to wait. I don't want to finish. I want to go on to the next thing. I am not a waiter. This is so hard, so hard. But here's what is so interesting about the word wait. Here's the word wait. It's the only time that this word is actually ever used in the New Testament. It's a conjunction of two Greek words, peri and meno. That's what this word says right here. In the Greek, it's, uh, it literally means regarding or concerning your abiding. It's not just waiting, like standing, doing nothing, waiting. Jesus is asking a very important question when he says Wait. This four little word asks, what is the source of my strength? What is my anchor? When I am shaken to my core, what is going to come out of me? What will come out of me in front of my enemy? What is going to come out of me when I am disappointed? What is going to come out of me when I'm faced with opposition? Because here's the thing, Jesus knew that his disciples were going into an experience and into a situation where they were going to be shaken to their core, they were going to be tested, and they were going to be tried like none other. And if they were doing it out of their own strength, out of their own charisma, out of their own power, they would quit, and they would give up. And so Jesus says, friends, you need to wait. Ask yourself, where are you finding your strength? Where are you anchored to? Where is your hope? Where is your trust? Jesus says, wait, my friends, you need to breathe. Breathe, take a deep breath, wait. Because Jesus knew that the road that he was calling his disciples to follow was a very, very dangerous road, a very troubling road. And if his disciples were going to go down this road by their own strength and by their own power, they would quit. They would see it's not worth it. Every one of the disciples, save John, was killed in a very, very horrible fashion. Jesus is saying, friends, I know what lies ahead for all of you. As my disciples, I know exactly what lies ahead. Stephen, right, in just a couple chapters in Acts, we're going to get there in a, in, in a couple of weeks, is the first martyr, right? The first one who was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. I know exactly what lies down this path for each one of you. And, and if you were to do this out of your own strength, out of your own charisma, out of your own power, your own extroversion, you would not follow through with it. And so wait and abide and know. That there is a power waiting for you. John later would describe abiding as a grape being attached to a vine. A grape that is detached from a vine sits there, falls off the vine, right? It sits there and it it dwindles and it turns into a raisin of all things. And we don't want to be raisins. Raisins are gross. Like, come on. Like, nobody wants to be a raisin, right? We need to stay attached to the vine, And John would say this, if you detach from the vine, you do not have a source of power, you do not have a source of strength any longer. And so you must remain attached to the vine, the source of your power, because only there will you grow. And Jesus is saying, my friends, by your own ingenuity, your own creativity, you will not accomplish the mission I'm sending you on. And so yes, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection was God's thing, right? He was the one who accomplished that. The aftershocks, though they are accomplished through us, we must realize they are God's thing too. That's God's doing. God wants to work through us to accomplish his task, but ultimately it is God's power that we must wait on. And so Jesus says, wait, because God's about to power your mission. You see, John baptized you with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so the idea is, like, in the same way that John uniquely baptized you, he dunked you, he submerged you into water. In that same way, you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be dunked or submerged, dripping, sopping wet with the Holy Spirit. Kind of a weird way of saying it, but that's essentially what Jesus is saying. You are going to be dripping, sopping wet with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is like, my friends, wait. Wait. Wait, abide, live and move and breathe in the Spirit, and you have no idea what kind of power then will reside in you. It's the same Spirit that raised me up from the dead is now going to be in you. It's that same Spirit that hovered over the the waters of chaos during creation that God ultimately said, my sovereign rule is going to put you right. This Spirit is going to reside in each and every one of you. Now, you'd think that the disciples would say, of course, this is how we would all react, right? We'd say, wow, Jesus, that's incredible. Okay, when this spirit comes upon us, we are going to go change the world. When this same spirit comes upon us, we are going to go do miraculous things in the world. We are going to go rid the world of the plague of death. I mean, that's how we all wake up every single morning, right? For those who have trusted in Christ, for those of us who have given this gift of the Holy Spirit, we, we, that's, that's our motivation every day, right? no. Nobody's there with me, right? To go rid the world of the plague of death because you've given the power that raised Jesus from the grave? I think more oftentimes than not, we're kind of like the disciples. Here's what they said. Lord, are you then at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is probably like, you know what? Why are you guys so dull? He just shook his head at his disciples. He like, come on, you know, I've been beating this into your head for three years now and you still can't get it. They were still so focused on this little tiny corner of the globe called Israel. All they were interested in was this little tiny corner of the globe occupied by this one little people, Israel. Oh, you still have this mindset that God's restoration, that God's salvation is only for the Jews, Jesus would say. I mean, that's why later, if you read through the book of Acts, and we'll get to this part eventually too, but they're all like, all the disciples and all the followers of Jesus, are, so many of them are like, well, hey, if you want to become a follower of God, if you want to become right with God, you first have to become an Israelite. You first have to become Jewish. You first have to follow all the laws and become circumcised. You have to do what the Jews do if you want to be right with God. See, the disciples just didn't get it. They didn't get it. So Paul, right, God, God looks at Paul And he transforms him, who understood, that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. This is in Romans. It's a very convoluted and challenging theological portion of Scripture, Romans 9 through 11. But really what Paul is trying to say is that, hey, just because you're a Jew doesn't mean that you're right with God. That doesn't mean anything to God. Not all who descended from Israel are Israel, meaning that just because you're born a Jew does not mean that you're part of God's family Paul said that Christ is the culmination of the law. Christ came to fulfill Israel's purpose, not to abolish the law, but to redefine Israel and the purpose and the law around himself. See, God's chosen people, God's righteous people are now those who live by faith. And guess what? Faith is available to everybody, not just the Jewish people. And so Jesus would say, come on, you're not justified. You're not declared to be right with God because of the law. You're not declared to be right with God because you're a Jew. You're declared to be right with God because of faith. And faith is available to everybody, not just the Jewish people who are given the law. So restoration is for and is available to the entire world, not just Israel. But there's an interesting like modern-day implication and application, I think, to this, uh, which kind of irritates me and kind of frustrates me. Oftentimes, when people discover that I'm a pastor, I'll ask them, hey, do you attend church anywhere? And of course, in our region of the world, the vast majority of people will say, no, of course not. I don't go to church anymore. Why would I waste my time going to church? Because church is irrelevant, or church um, doesn't uh, appeal to me, or goodness, um, there's the Masters on Sunday morning, so why would I go to church when I could stay at home and watch the Masters? Or last week, on Easter morning, of all things, why would I go to church when my kid has a baseball tournament? Why would I wake up and try to wrestle my four kids out of the house? They try to get to that place, you know? It's like in, in our in our day and age, in our area of the world, most people say, no, of course not, I don't go to church. But what oftentimes people will say is, the reason I don't go to church is because, well, church is for church people, and I'm just not really a church person. And one of the reasons our culture, specifically here in the Northeast, has slid into a post-Christian mentality is because the attitude that the church is for church people also assumes that the message of the church, the gospel of Jesus, must also then be for church people. And so here's what's happened. The church in America has dwindled down to nearly nothing. Some churches are booming because 80% of the church growth happens because Christian transfers, Christians transfer their church affiliation from one church to another. We could also put it this way. 80% of churches are dying— And that's a very unfortunate fact in today's American life. The 20% that are growing do so mainly because 80% are dying. We're just transferring Christian bodies from one building to another. That church down the road closed its doors. People didn't like what the pastor had to say down there. They don't like that worship style of music anymore. I don't know, they just moved cities maybe. And so Christians are just moving from one building to another. Now we have it as our stated goal here that 80% of our growth would come from new commitments to Christ. That we want to be reaching our community. And here's the thing, if you are with us because you transferred from another church, well we are so glad that you're here. I don't want you to see this as, you know, we're spiting you. Um, it's just it's the fact. It's the fact of the church life in America today. And I'm glad that you're here because now you get to help us with this mission of reaching our community and raising up disciples to be like Christ and to live like Christ in our community. But we have, as as a stated goal, that 80% of our growth would come from new commitments to Christ. And we have to nuance that, and we'll talk more about that as the series continues, but we want to be a church reaching our community, not just stealing sheep from other pens. See, look at what the look what the disciples are are actually asking in this question. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you now finally Jesus gonna wipe out the Romans and their oppression so that once again Israel can experience its golden age? Jesus, are you gonna do it? Jesus, are you gonna restore our community? Jesus, are you—do you see what I'm emphasizing here? Are you going to be the one, Jesus, to do it? And the answer, of course, is yes, Jesus is the one to do it. And, of course, the answer is no. Jesus is not going to be the one to do it. See, Jesus' response to his disciples is, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And we kind of look at that, and we're kind of like, well, that's kind of a non-answer. But Jesus is really saying, well, here's the, here's the deal, friends. If you don't know when it's going to happen, if you don't know actually what's going to happen next, if you don't know what the future holds, then keep on keeping on. Then keep going. Then don't quit. See, the disciples are kind of thinking, Jesus, you know, we don't know what tomorrow holds, and so we're just going to quit today. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and so we're just not going to try. We don't know how that person is gonna respond, and so I'm just not gonna say anything. Jesus, if I approach that person, I don't know what they're gonna say to me, and so I'm just not gonna open my mouth. Jesus, if I approach that person, I don't know what they're gonna say to me, and so I'm just not gonna try. And Jesus says, well, if you don't know what's gonna happen, if you don't know what the future is gonna hold, then, then keep going. Then abide, and press in, and press on, and don't give up. See, the question they are asking is because you, Jesus, are going to restore the kingdom, how little can we get by with? Jesus, because you are going to be the one doing the work, do we just have to do nothing? Jesus, can I just stand over here and kind of watch you work? Because that would be great. Can I just watch, Jesus, you do the restoration? Can I just watch, Jesus, as you do the work? And I'll just stand over here and just, like, be a great observer? Because that would be awesome, because... Those conversations are kind of awkward. And I don't really want to enter into those conversations. And so Jesus, if you could just do the work, that would be awesome. Thanks in advance. And Jesus says, (laughs) no. Why? Because you or we and me, we are the aftershock. Yes, there are times when I'm going to intervene in some miraculous way. Just wait. I mean, if we get through the book of Acts, right, he is going to convert the haters. He is going to unlock the prison doors. He is going to heal in miraculous ways. He's going to raise the dead. Yes, Jesus is going to intervene in miraculous ways. But he would say, No, you are my primary aftershock. You are the aftershock. It is through you that I'm going to change the world. It is through us that I'm going to change the world. And if for whatever reason we choose to say, you know what, Jesus, it's just not my time. For whatever reason we just say, Jesus, you know what, I don't want to take that responsibility. I don't have the strength, I don't have the courage, whatever, Jesus. God will fulfill his good purposes in another way. I believe that. But we will miss out on the blessing. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God put you next to that coworker for such a time as this. Who knows? Maybe God moved you into that community for such a time as this. Who knows? Maybe God put that person on your kid's baseball team for such a time as this. He continues, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And the disciples are finally like, power, finally. Yes, we like power. We love power. What kind of power are we going to have, Jesus? Are we going to, what, overthrow the Romans with this power? Are we going to claim thrones with this power? Are we going to acquire wealth with this power? What are we going to do with this power? We like power. In America, we love power, right? We love the idea of having power. So what kind of power, Jesus, are you going to entrust us with? You will be my witness, Jesus says. Witness? <laughs> witness? That's the power you're going to give us? Ah, Jesus, you're going to give us the power to be your witness. In Jerusalem, and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is going to give us power to be your witness. To, like, I I, I don't know, testify about you. You know, to the fact that you have risen from the dead, so that when people look at us and how we speak and how we act and how we Facebook and how we tweet and how we forgive and how we live it would actually all point back to you that's the kind of power you're going to give us like like that we would actually have the power to love others in the same way that you have loved us and that we'd have the power to forgive others in the same way that you have forgiven us that's the power we're going to be forgiven like or we're going to be given like like god you're going to give us the power to love and to forgive even even our enemies, even the people who have wronged us, that's the power you're going to give us? You're going to give us power to represent you and to model you to the world? And Jesus is like, yeah. That's it. That's the power I'm going to give you. You're not going to have power to rule nations. You're not going to have power to claim thrones. I'm going to give you the power to be my witness. And not just for those who already know God, right? That's easy. Not just for the sheep and other pens, so that you can grow up your church body, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you the power to be my witness in Samaria. You know, the Samaritans, those evil, dreaded, hated foes of yours, the people that you consider your worst enemies on the planet, I'm going to give you the power to be my witnesses there. I'm going to give you the power to represent me to your enemies, to love your enemies, to forgive your enemies like you've been forgiven. To represent me to that coworker that you just cannot stand. I mean, it's easy to love the, the person that you rub shoulders with at the water cooler and your good buddy buddy rhythm, right? It's easy to love that person. What about that coworker that you just cannot stand? I'm gonna give you the power to love that person too. I'm gonna give you the power to represent me and to love even your ex. You know, your ex spouse, the person that you are constantly in battle with and constantly at war with. Yeah, I'm gonna give you the power to even love and to forgive that person. I'm going to give you the power to forgive and to, and to represent me and to love even that neighbor, that neighbor kid even who bugs the living daylights out of you. What about that kid on the school bus who is constantly picking on you and bullying you? Yeah, I'm going to give you the power to love that person too. Represent me, even to the people whom you consider enemies, because you were my enemy, and I loved, and I forgave you. I'm going to choo- help you live just like I have lived upon this planet. And as you represent me, then Jerusalem and Judea, and even to your enemies, the Samaritans, then keep going. Keep going, even to the ends of the earth, and you will be amazed by the impact you make. Did you know, friends, that we are about as far from Jerusalem as you can possibly get? Here we are, standing on the ends of the earth 2,000 years later, representing Jesus to our community. I want to invite Emily forward. We're going to sing a final song as we conclude our service together. So, my friends, here's the thing. We, as followers of Jesus, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, and I recognize and I understand that not everybody here is a follower of Jesus, that we have not all made that decision. We have not all committed to that and surrendered to that commitment. I totally get that. But we who have are the primary aftershock of the resurrection of Jesus. And even in those times when miracles do happen, they happen most often through people. We're going to see as we explore Acts. God has chosen to redeem the world through his image bearers. He has chosen to redeem the world through the ones he's already redeemed. God has chosen to place the power of the resurrection, the aftershock of that great quake that shook the earth in us the power of his Holy Spirit. And if we choose to do nothing with this responsibility, that's a choice we have. If we choose to do nothing with this responsibility, God will fulfill his promise in another way. But we will miss out on the blessing. Jesus says that we will be his witness. It's it's interesting. In the Greek, um, the word for witness is martus. It's the word that we get our English word martyr from, (laughs) So that just adds a fun little twist to it, doesn't it? Like, you will be my martyr? Oh, okay, that's a little different, right? You will be my martyr in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be the one who sacrifices for my cause. Now, in their first day, Jesus is saying, yes, this is very literal. And even today, there are people who are constantly sacrificing their lives for the cause of Christ. That's very dangerous to be a Christian in many, many parts of the world today. We are very blessed to not have that experience here. But it leaves us with a question. What does it mean to be a witness? What does it mean to be a martyr in 21st century America for the cause of Christ? What you'll discover in the New Testament is that the characteristic that the Holy Spirit inspires most in us is love. In First Corinthians, actually, Paul went to great lengths to describe this in, very, in great detail. The, the greatest gift, the greatest empowerment of the Holy Spirit upon any of us is the ability to love. It's not the ability to speak in tongues or prophesy or cast spells or perform miracles. It's to love like Jesus has loved us. And a self-sacrificial for the betterment of others, of all others, of friends and family and enemies alike kind of love. See, the Holy Spirit actually empowers our martyrdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. The Holy Spirit is going to empower your martyrdom. Our self-sacrificial love for others and in some unique, otherworldly, but with this world implications, our loving like Jesus loved is the great beacon of light into the dark world. That our loving like Jesus has loved is the great beacon of hope into a world ridden with despair. And so as we wait and as we abide... As we live and move and have our being tied up in the Holy Spirit that empowers our love, I simply want to I simply want to challenge you to ask yourself. Ask yourself before you enter that meeting. Ask yourself before you enter that house where you know you're going to be challenged. Ask yourself before you enter that meeting, that conversation. Ask yourself before you log on to Facebook or before you log on to Twitter or Instagram or before you open your computer in general or go to that website, before you con- confront that person, before you play that game, before you type that thing or go on social media, before you live, before you move, before you breathe, I simply want you to ask this question, what does love require of me? And say a simple prayer, Jesus, Heavenly Father, like enlighten me to this to this very important question and the answer to it because I need your Holy Spirit to empower it I need your Holy Spirit to empower my movement, but I need to ask this question here. What does love require of me? This is essentially the question that is the great testimony, that is the great witness to Jesus. It's a collection of people that are living and asking this question that will represent Jesus well to the world. And so are you willing to ask it before every scenario, before every situation? And in that, then, would you be willing to bear witness to all that Christ has done for us. I'm going to sing, say say a prayer for us, and then we're going to sing one final song to conclude our time together. And then I want to leave us just just a simple challenge as we conclude our time. But Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for all that you've accomplished. I want to thank you for all that you've done, the way that you've loved us, the way that you have inspired us, Father. That you've given us this incredible, incredible responsibility to be your witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And it's, it's challenging to know entirely what that means, Father, but, but as we wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, as we, as we abide, Father, as we acknowledge that our strength comes from you, and our power comes from you, and our courage comes from you, Father, that it's not, it's, you, you didn't you didn't just rely on our ambition or our motivation or our strength or our power or our extraversion, Father, to go and to tell people, No, you said I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the power that you need. And so I pray that we would be a people who are surrendering, that we are unclenching our fists from our own abilities and creativity and ingenuity, Father, and we're relying on your spirit to do something amazing in our community. That we are abiding and trusting, and that we're relying on you as the source of our power. And then, Father this power then would <laughs> it would help us to be a witness. It would help us to be a martyr, one who is giving of ourselves self-sacrificially for the betterment of others, even those who might consider our enemies that we would choose to love in the same way that you have loved us. Father, let us ask this question. What does love require of me in every single movement that I make, every step, every choice, every decision that is before me? Father, what does love require of me? And then, Father, empower me. Give me the courage, Father, not only the wisdom to understand the answer to this question, but the power and the courage then to follow through. That is my prayer for each of us, Father, that we would have the wisdom to understand the answer and the courage to follow through. And I just pray, Father, that as we then are the aftershocks of your great shakening, right, the the resurrection that many, many, many might experience the great love of the Father through us and also commit their lives to experience the abundant grace, the abundant love, the abundant hope, the abundant life that comes with knowing Jesus. We pray this in his majesty's name. Amen.